In this episode, we speak with Brian Saunders, the founder and CEO of Big Time Software, a company with more than 2,000 customers that has created and marketed software responsible for tracking over $2 billion in professional time each year. The company is backed by Vista Equity Partners, Wavecrest Growth Partners, and others. Prior to founding Big Time Software in 2002, Brian was the CEO of DaVinci Software, a software strategy and consulting firm that was named one of Crane's top 25 software companies in 2000, shortly before being acquired by Liquid Thinking in early 2001. We hope you enjoy the show. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. One area I'd like to start off in is is something, an area that's, I think, unique. As I was looking at the history of big-time software, I would say you took a perhaps untraditional approach in that you were fairly modest in, especially in the early days, maybe early two decades of the company's lifecycle and raising capital. So tell us about your approach. It looks like your first real raise didn't happen until maybe 10 years after you founded the company. Yeah, sure, sure. It's funny because a big time is in a market that's a fairly fairly deep market these days, this kind of PSA market, but it took a while for that market to really gel. And so, you know, I grew up in entrepreneurial businesses and kind of grew my own consulting organization before big time. And, you know, we just kind of wanted to bootstrap and grow it kind of the old fashioned way and get up a bunch of customers and a bunch of feedback. There's some complicated workflows in there and we wanted to get them right. I'm a product guy, you know, that's kind of where I grew up. And so, you know, we wanted to make sure there was a great fit with the market and it is complex enough and diverse enough that you know, we wanted to have a lot of time with those various kind of workflows and scenarios to really make sure that we understood the customer. And that what I liked about that approach, it's longer than it should have been. You know, I, I'm uh, sitting and watching other CEOs move faster. I'm always a little jealous that they're capable of, of moving so quick, right? But but you know, we we kind of pick up the pace when the market kind of turned and the tide started to go, and we really felt like we could move pretty quickly. But in the short term, the advantage of that was kind of deal with so many different professional services firms. And somewhere along the way, it turned from an engineering software problem into, you know, pattern matching. Like as these uh, PS firms grow, at this point, if I have two, you know, 20 person services firms and I come back in two years and one of them's 60 and the other one's 20, I kind of know what the 60 person firm did. It just is a set of patterns. And I'm sure it's very similar to your world RJ, where you, you know, you're out there kind of investing in software companies and you get the patterns that are required to grow and you just sort of see it. And so, you know, I, we kind of do the same thing in the professional services space with these firms that are just looking to get bigger projects and more people and greater expertise. And, and that's kind of what Big Time's founded on. Did you ever think that the company would be completely owner? operated and owner like fully owned or did you foresee taking an outside yeah so the question is i and i think there's a lot of guys especially in growth pe who similar question right like you you end up running into these companies that have been either family run or owner run for a long time and built uh, 10 20 million in revenue and then you know private equity comes in and you end up with a founder or a management team that has maybe not the same investment sophistication as an organization that grew up through the venture community you know like kind of the archetypical handoff from venture to growth to kind of larger private equity so the question is when we came to it did we ever think at the beginning we would just grow it to 100 million and own a run? I'm not even sure a cap table entered my head. 
I think it was more about like, what's the industry look like? How do we grow? How do we get bigger? You know, how do we penetrate with different industry verticals or what have you? And capital was kind of a side note. You know, even in, in 2013, when we raised our first round, it was more like, yeah, we, it'd be great to have capital, but also it'd be great to have some discipline and like quarterly board meetings and people we have to answer to and decks and slide, you know, like the whole bit. So it's just something where we get pace and discipline and some goals that people are holding our feet to the fire on. So it was never really a question of, we need to raise 10 million just to build the damn product. It was more, you know, let's raise and let's start to professionalize a little bit in the boardroom and, and get a little bit better cadence going. And it, you know, it kind of goes back to in that process when we first raised that round, it was mostly, you know, that first round was mostly people I knew in Chicago because I'd been around a long time. What's interesting is that that sort of evolution helped us realize, okay, wait, there really are just like in our customers, there are patterns within our business that somebody who has gone through B2B SaaS software is going to understand. And the second round we raised in 2019 with Wavecrest is a phenomenal group out of Boston. You know, two partners, first fund, one from Vista and one from Bain. And that kind of the impetus behind that was finding somebody who'd been through the B2B software kind of life cycle before that could help us understand the patterns that we ought to be following and just really buckle down on the metrics we ought to be watching and the you know pathway to scaling up the sales and marketing team and all those things that you get when private equity shows up. Yeah, it looked like it happened in pretty short order. Within a few years, you were then kind of positioned to take in a very substantial round. Tell us about that. We, you know, we try to focus on growth investors and how okay. uh, they're able to add value to companies. And clearly, it seemed like the trajectory of the business changed. They may or may not be true. I mean, it'd be interested to it hear is, your thoughts. It is. And, and, you know, we're all buttoned up when you listen to podcasts and CEOs, right? Like we've only been through media training. And so I don't know if you get a lot of non-rehearsed answers, but let me try and give you one. You know, I think some of that is professionalizing the things that one professionalizes right off the bat. You know, we, we hired somebody as a, our head of go-to-market who brought in somebody in marketing and somebody else in sales that they just knew the patterns and how the team should grow. So yes, some of that is the private equity firm saying, look, here's kind of a structure we can follow. And going back and forth was advice on how to structure the organization and the talent so that it, we can stop stepping in each other's toes. Some of it's also the trend. I mean, you know, some of it's just the market. Like we happen to be in the right place. Like I said, it, PSA took a long time to mature. And then when it matured, it, there suddenly was a lot of interest. And so we were able to kind of ride that wave. But your original question, I think, is like, you know, basically how do investors in general add value to a growth company, right? You know, some of its connections, obviously, some of the stuff that I'm sure lots of your guests talk about. I think every serious growth PE firm has value add that they can provide. And probably the big responsible thing that they do, or some of them are really good at it and some of them need some work, is picking the entrepreneur that matches your style. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but you, know, you have somebody in the boardroom who tends to push and a CEO who shuts down when they're pushed. You know, it doesn't just happen in the boardroom. It's, it's phone calls every week and the texts at night. You really are, find a, the right PE partner and they are a partner. You know, they're the person that you bounce ideas off of. They get when you're being kind of pie in the sky versus when you're being practical and, and they know how to steer you to get the best out of what you have to offer, you know? And so there are people that you just click with in the same way that there are people that you're friends with and people that, you know, you're nice to, but you're not necessarily close to. And if you can match that up, it's just magic because you have experience and a lack of 
nervousness or passion, I suppose, about the thing that you've spent so much time building as an investor. You just have that experience and you can be dispassionate. And the entrepreneur brings a certain amount of passion and really deep understanding of the mechanics behind whatever it is you're building. And when you put those two things together, you really can work through some complex problems that there's just no substitute for. Anybody out there listening to your podcast who's thinking, should I or shouldn't I get into this PE-driven growth cycle? And I would say you find the right partner. It's just magical. It's really impressive. Having said that, I, you know, I think the opposite is true too. Like if you're and this is just in growth and software, but I, you know, I think if you don't add strategic or operational value, you don't really belong in like on the cap table, right? Like it just money at this point is not what you should be bringing to the table. You should be looking for entrepreneurs where you can really tweak them and get the best out of them. And speaking to that relationship between investors and uh, CEOs and their perspective kind of management teams that they would work with, uh, did you find that there was a set of investors that were kind of reaching out fairly early on and then tracking you as well as keeping up to date and seeing how the company was progressing? Yeah, let's see. Early on, sure. Before we did the Wavecrest round in 2019-ish, there were people who would reach out from an analyst perspective, but it was pretty rote. And then there were people who would reach out at kind of the director or even partner level. And mostly, I'm not real shy about trying to get advice. So mostly I would get on the phone with those guys. And if, if I can walk through my strategy for something and they can feedback on it, I'm sure, you know, you look at your list of like top private equity investors in that kind of list of 20 or 25. You had some people who have no business looking at a, you know, five, seven, $10 million software company who are willing to get on the phone and say, well, yeah, maybe, but think about these three things or sure. But don't forget, you also need, you know, sales enablement if you're going to grow the sales team, like really detailed advice. Mm -hmm. And so those are the partners where I still keep in touch. I mean, you know, we have no investment interest at all, but those are still the partners that I keep in touch with because you can tell their passion is helping an entrepreneur figure stuff out. Right. As soon as that's the person you find, great. Okay, now it's just a question of are you compatible with their investment requirements and your personal style? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, let's talk about the professional services market because it's interesting how you said it, it took a while for it to really... I guess, catch on with... Well, you know, PSA is a, is a term of art, meaning that all of the software and investor people talk about it, but none of my customers do. They don't consider, they just look at it as run the business software, right? And so for a long time, that was a collection of disparate apps. And, you know, even today, if we're talking to somebody who's a 20 or a 30 person engineering firm, and, you know, they're looking to professionalize the business, but they haven't dipped their toe into systems. You know what I mean? They haven't like, I don't know, a timesheet or expense tracking or budgeting system. You know, all they've got is accounting. Maybe they only have QuickBooks. They're typically not ready for us. They just haven't gone through that realization that it's not about tracking time, for example, as a professional firm. It's about all that connective tissue that goes into that timesheet to begin with. Where's the budget? Who's assigned to what? How is it coinciding? Who's free and busy? Like all those things that go around it. You have to have gone through that valley first to figure out, geez, I need more than just tracking time. And so it's almost better if they've collected these various disparate apps and tried them before figuring out, geez, I need something more unified. And really PSA, when it took off, is just all of those little individual apps unified into one spot. It's mini ERP for a professional services organization so that I don't have to have all these things stitched together. They just kind of all feed each other. And that connective tissue is where you really, okay, now I can drill down and make a difference with the data 
in the organization that I'm trying to build. And as you're scaling the company and, and maybe even founding it, how concerned were you about competitors? Because it seems mm-hmm. like there could be other you know, incumbent companies that could easily create a product team and develop something that could compete. Have you read The Innovator's Dilemma, the Christensen book? I, I know about it. Everybody knows it. I love that book because it's, I kind of built my whole world around it, my entire career, like, you know, around that book. I think their company like Intuit come in and create something better than what my little company could create and own the market. And the answer is maybe, but I mean, the person running QuickBooks, that's a two or $3 billion. They need a three or $400 million opportunity this year just to hit their growth number, ignoring like pie in the sky, where could we go next? They have to stay generic. And the problem is that when big organizations like that are generic, Salesforce has the same problem. They just, they have to be big. And so when you have something generic like that, you got to fill the gap with these specific businesses that really need something honed to their needs, you know? And so that's where companies like, you know, any vertical SaaS software, but companies like Big Time in particular can really build a nice little business. It's It's a gigantic industry. And frankly, you know, one of the challenges is, in PSA in general, it's all right, well, how do you focus? What's the type of company that you're really going to zero in on? And I think that's probably true whenever you think about competition, you know, to bring it back to, I guess, people who might actually listen to this, is that when you're dealing with a new business or a new idea and you start to think about competition and who might kind of blow you out of the water, um, just come up with something that's niche enough and specific enough that you can build a little competitive moat around experience. By the time we closed our second round with Wavecrest, we had almost 3,000 logos. Like We had thousands of customers using the system. My closest competitor had a few hundred. And we've been doing it for decades. And my closest competitor has been doing it for maybe you know four or five years. Mm-hmm. So they were making mistakes that we made back in the early 2000s in terms of you know how to customize things or you know what to leave open versus what to close off versus what to present with something that's fixed. You know, they'll figure out eventually, but man, we were just miles ahead of that. And that had nothing to do with, could you create a bigger, badder product team? That had to do with just that experience over time creates its own little moat. As you think about competition, it's what can I be number one at? Ignoring who else is going to come and eat my lunch because the chances are good that, you know, there's always going to be competition. But what specifically could I be number one at? And then I'm going to go do that little niche thing and build excitement there. And that'll create opportunities to jump into other ancillary, either industries or customers that'll start to really create momentum. And you found the niche market in those early days. You said, that's big enough. You know, the professional services segment, that's big enough where if we become the dominant player, we're going to be, you know, bringing in significant revenue. Most people underestimate the TAM of that market. It's kind of fun to watch, actually. And in fact, you know, when we did the round just recently with Vista, we had it. You know, it was just that time, you know, you could kind of see where we wanted to take the company. And as we looked collectively at where we wanted to go with the organization, we thought, God, there's, it feels like there's an entity missing at the table here. Like we need somebody who's really gone through this before and nobody in the room has. So let's go find that entity. And, you know, Vista was kind of a natural fit. But when we talked to them, we, we didn't actually talk to them first because V, my partner, was at Vista. He's like, hey, you should talk to a guy you used to work with there. You know, they were probably, you know, not the right fit for them, but interesting. And he says it fits their investment. So, you know, go have coffee with him. He's based in Chicago. I thought, okay. I kind of looked him up and I thought, well, I, 
this isn't going to invest in this, but I want to meet Rachel Arnold, who runs the Endeavor. Like, she's a stud. She's a product stud. She's been in it forever. She's like, has all this ESG cred, you know? So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go out to coffee with this dude just so I can finagle an intro to Rachel because I kind of want to meet her. So we were talking to other people at the time, but they came back, talking about the TAM, they came back with this market study on the addressable market. And they're like, hey, it, this is gigantic. This is really big. Like your biggest problem is going to be focusing, but we think you could focus here, here, and here and really make a difference. And I thought, okay, that that's So they went out and actually did the work. So I think it might be the first investor that I've ever talked to who didn't underestimate the size and the mm-hmm. scale of the professional services market. It's big. And you know, it's, it's beyond just like anybody who does service. Every software firm that grows has a little mini services organization within it, any SaaS organization, in order to get people up and running and using the system. And most of the time when you're a CEO of a SaaS organization, you look at the services organization and think, well, how many people do I have to add? And how do we know that we've got capacity? And are we making money, losing money? Like, how does that work? It's this little 20, 30, 50, 100 person consulting firm within every SaaS company in the country. So, mm-hmm. so you know, when you start to look at that as potential addressable market, it gets pretty significant. I would not say, to add to your original question, RJ, I, I don't think that I thought that deeply about total TAM when we were building the company. Mm-hmm. I thought, can I build a $10 million software company in this space? And yeah, I think I could. Mm-hmm. Now you have significant capital at your back. Have you ever been in this position before where you're deciding how you allocate it out? And uh, how is this different than before? How is this different? Well, yeah, it's like playing for the Yankee. I, I think it's, you know, when you walk into the Vista CEO Summit, it does feel like, I was talking to somebody about that the other day who said, hey, what's it like being a Vista CEO? And I thought, well, it, you know, it's like being a high school quarterback and walking into the Ohio State training <laughs> facility. Like, great, I know all this equipment, but Jesus, this is a different game, you know? So that piece of the puzzle is kind of fun. You know, you get a bunch of men and women who've done, been there, done that, you know, about a million times. And so all the questions you have, nobody's going to say, I've got the answer, but they're all going to say, hey, here's a similar situation. Talk to so-and-so. Um, so that's nice. You know, it is obviously not just me making decisions about where we go. But what's nice about, again, all the way back to what we talked about at the top of the call, their partners just are plugged into what it takes to tweak an entrepreneur and get the best out of them. And so here's the vision. Here's seven different ways we could accomplish it. Here's you know a bunch of different companies we could talk to about M&A. If you really want to build that, what are we missing? Here's a way to analyze that. Here's a boatload of really talented people that we could draw from to add to your team and supplement so that we're surrounding somebody who hasn't gone through a ton of M&A before with people who have. So now that's an art in and of itself. I think that's what gets a company like that to be as successful as Vista is because they know we're not going to come in and run the company, but we are going to surround that vision with people who can execute so that we can all be successful. And, you know, they require somebody who's willing to say, yeah, okay, great. That's awesome. I have no idea. You know, that area is not my area of expertise. So bringing in somebody who knows way smarter in that space than I am, and then I get to listen to them. That's exciting to me. And I know there are certain kind of CEOs, entrepreneurs where that is threatening, right? So if that's your approach, like I want to control the whole thing. It's a terrible organization to work with. To their credit, they're very good at finding entrepreneurs, founders, you know, CEOs who, who fit with that style mm-hmm. and where it clashes that it just wouldn't work, right? So I do think that that ultimately, because the entrepreneur is so busy doing other things, that's ultimately the PE investors big social responsibility, figuring out somebody that, that that's a good fit personality-wise. 
I'm really curious to hear about uh, your perspective on how your leadership style has evolved since mm. you first began your first business. Like, I think you began right after you graduated. Did, yeah, yeah. So, I right, would right. love to hear kind of as a little bit of self reflection, but you must have. You're never going to evolve along that question. We're all buttoned up about that. We have our origin story all squared. There's a PR person probably standing off camera, but I'll give it a shot. You know, I'm an old man now. You know, I started, I just graduated from Chicago and kind of left into a consulting business. So my old partner, I had a partner in that first business and and he used to say afterward, who's gone on to be really successful, not in technology, refuses to do tech. He's in uh, restaurants and hotels and real estate. And so, but he said, Every lesson we learned when we were growing DaVinci, we just learned through brute experience. You know what I mean? Like there's no like spreadsheet that prepares you for it. You just like you're in the middle of it and kind of figure it out. And I think that 2020 hindsight, the thing about how great that is to have an investor next to you who's already gone through that and who can say, you know what's over there? A big cliff. So let's not fall off that. You know, let's prepare for that. And hey, you know what we're missing around the corner? This talent. So let's go start to look for that talent, even though they're not ready for it. You never know. Let's have a couple of conversations and maybe we find someone we like. That type of thing would have been so helpful early on. And so I think because of that, because of that transition over time to having had that experience now in the boardroom, okay, now my management style is very open and collaborative. Anybody who can help, that's awesome. Come help. Tell me what I'm missing. Tell me what I don't know. Let's have a conversation. It's not that I have no ego. I have plenty of ego. I just, it's so refreshing to hear from people who have real expertise. And as a manager, what I figured out is, hey, you have to be careful about how you talk back and forth in that scenario. You have to be very clear that you're collaborative because as the CEO, I think you can shut those folks down. You know, they can be intimidated by it in the same way that people can be intimidated in the boardroom. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very easy for an investor to shut a CEO down just by talking over them. And so I think that, interest in making sure I have that collaborative expertise has led me to be a little bit more of a listener and a little bit less of a dictator, I suppose, over time. Got it. And how about your management style of your team? Has that evolved, you know, like in little ways that you've been able to get more out of your people, perhaps, or maybe your communication style has evolved? Not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just No, 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 that's right. That's right. No, I get it. I understand the question that the Yeah, probably in subtle ways. I don't typically run meetings where I am a dictator. It tends to be a little bit more of a team effort. And that's just, you know, some of that is me being an old man and lazy, but some of it is also like, you don't get the best out of people if they are nervous about giving you their best, right? And there is a time, I mean, there's all sorts of tricks you use, you know, like there are people who are very interested in being supportive, not yes men in particular, but like just their tendency is to say, well, yeah, I'll just go with the flow. All right, well, those people you need to single out and push a little in order to get a real opinion out of them. Or maybe they're not great in the group setting and you have to do this one-on-one. Or maybe you have to throw out something challenging that's clearly wrong to see if people can push back a little bit and get a feel for like, okay, yeah, so they're willing to, to push back where it doesn't make sense in order just to feel confident. And so, so I think there is a little bit of recognition of the individual that's across the table or in the conference room and trying to figure out where that individual is. And I think, you know, some of that's being a parent. I don't have kids, but like my head of product has a couple of daughters in college and she'd said to me the other day, you know, having kids makes it so much easier to manage people because you have to pay attention to the human, have to find them and draw them out. So I think, you know, some of that's just age as opposed to experience in business, you know, but I do think as soon as you 
in anything. I should probably do this in interviewing too, I'm sure. Like it, you find the personality that's sitting across from you and figure out how to draw it out and you just get real gold. If right. you're not successful at it, then you know you get decent performance, but it's not what that person's potential really is. Right. Well, we're coming up on time, actually. We're, we're, oh my gosh. we're over time, but that's okay. And, and I typically have two questions I end with. I think you've okay. answered one of them already because I asked about a book recommendation. You've mentioned Innovator's Dilemma. That's pretty um, good. Yeah. 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 I like it. The second question is if there's a leader you know, that you find particularly inspiring that you mm. try to emulate in, in some ways. Emulate. So do people typically talk about CEOs or do they just like generally talk about leader? Because Yeah, generally. Zelensky in Ukraine is looking like a leader yeah. today. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a classic entrepreneur, actually. That's a guy who came from nothing having to do with politics and is suddenly like the Winston Churchill of its time. Like, right. you kind of have to hats off to that. I struggle with emulating. And I've met so many people in my life that I have taken little things from. Yes. And, you know, you, you look at just that. CEO portfolio. There's a ton of guys in there who have literally created markets from zero. And, you know, you can learn a lot from them. But ultimately, you know, you kind of have to be your own person. It's better to focus on what you want to leave behind. And suddenly that dictates who you are in the moment, you know? And so I kind of think of it as, all right, well, look, I'm going to retire at some point or leave the room at some point. And like, what do I want that legacy to look like? And then let's go start building that today. That involves your entire interaction. So I hate to list myself as a person that I pay attention to, but I think it's more like you know challenging yourself every day to yeah. be that person that you believe you should be. That's probably as close to an answer as I can get. Got it. Well, that's great. This has been an awesome conversation. Very much appreciate the time you took Love here. It. And I know our audience will find this very insightful. So thank you. Yeah, you bet, man. It's great to meet you. 